You know, it's interesting that my story contrasts the people and some of the people I work with. So I started when I was 14. I was self-motivated, very unique, with no experience of the sport. And I work with people as young as eight years old that are world champions in their specialized sport. So I try to bridge the two worlds. And what I, what I try to do is make sure that they know at a young age that the sport is what you do, it's not who you are. That was Seth Pepper, top performance mental coach. He works with some of the best athletes in the world. You can hear more from Seth after a quick word from our sponsors. This episode 101 is sponsored by Avonmore Protein Milk. Give them a follow on Instagram at avonprotein or go online proteinmilk.ie. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat with your hosts, David Clancy and Kieran Dunn. This is a podcast about high performance. What we are striving to achieve is to figure out what makes high performing individuals tick, why they do what they do and why they are successful. Enjoy a journey of stories, lessons and learnings. Welcome to Sleep, Eat, Perform, Repeat, episode number 101. Today spoke to Seth Pepper, high performance mental coach for elite athletes, coaches, business and the arts, and a national champion swimmer. Seth used the power of the mind to become a national champion and then train others to be a champion. The key differentiator for Seth is what sits between our ears. He's worked with athletes and coaches in Major League Baseball, in the NHL, NCAA, ATP, NBA, NFL, PGA, LPGA, and so many more. In this episode, we dive into the origin story of Seth and swimming, how he became a national champion, and what it took. It is some story. We talk about mental health, mental performance, internal calling, and the nuances between the conscious and unconscious mind. Seth's piece about how we're all writing our own book really resonated with us and about how he aims to help people to help themselves get out of their own way. Thanks for joining us, Seth. You truly are a remarkable human being. Seth, thanks for coming on the show today. I appreciate the invite and looking forward to our conversation. How's life treating you over the last couple of months? Kind of, how have you managed to stay sane? Well, that's a good question. People have called me a bit crazy my whole life, so uh, I, don't, I don't know about the sanity part. But as far as the rest of the family, I have two small children and a wife. So, you know, it's challenging, but I think everybody else is in the same boat. From my past experience of being a, an athlete, kind of attuned to adversity. I was coached from the standpoint that adversity is opportunity. So as soon as this happened, I internally knew that something was exciting that was going on, even though it was going to be incredibly challenging. And then I just hoped that all the people I work with felt and reacted the same way. And I was really, uh, it was inspiring to see their, their, their adjustments and how they all basically came together with the same chant, if you will, of it's time to double down. So it's actually been a, a very enlightening and, you know, just a, an empowering time for us, even though it is challenging. I won't, I won't say that it's not challenging. Thanks for that, Set. You mentioned being an athlete before, and we know you're a swimmer. It would be a great time to hear a little bit of an overview about your career to date. Sure. Well, I was a swimmer. How I came about swimming was kind of an interesting story. I had made this decision. It started with a, a love of the Olympics. 
And it was from a very young age before even a child would really know what the Olympics were. I just had this internal calling. Every time it was on, I would, you know, watch it from start to finish. And then I would cry when it would end. And what's interesting is that my, my parents, neither of, of them were, uh, athletes. And so it was truly my own calling. When I was 14, I kind of felt that urge that I'm either going to go after this calling, dream, vision, or I was going to have to let it rest. And so at that point, I started studying. You know, I've always been kind of keen to spreadsheets and analyzing. And so I, I sat in front of the Olympics and I, with the objective of choosing a sport. So I, I got my spreadsheet out and went through and crossed out all the sports that I felt I didn't really have access to, kind of narrowed it down to swimming, and then from there just focused on swimming. And then when I had that focus on swimming, it was about studying it and finding the access point, if you will. And they were interviewing an Olympic gold medalist and asked her if there was someone out there that wanted to do what she just had accomplished, uh, what would you suggest? And and so I remember saying, whatever she says, that's what I'm going to do. And so she said that she went through a, a youth program. It's a YMCA here. So we have in every small town, there's, there's a YMCA or YWCA. So I went down to the, the youth athletic club and I was from a tiny little town of 35,000 people in Kaiser, Oregon originally. So I went down to the youth athletic club. And they had a small little two-lane swimming pool down in the basement. I walked up to the head coach and I said, I want to go to the Olympics. Can you help me? And wow. we kind of chuckled and, and then just that's, that was the beginning. You know, that's, that's how it all started. What, what was his reaction when you said that? Well, I think it was amusement, you know, but also it was, it was amusement in the sense that here's someone that shows up and they don't know how to swim. I did not know how to swim and I'm 14. So I'm not small by then. I mean, uh, most swimmers mm. start when they're six. And so immediately <laughs> when I started, you know, all the kids that were beating me were half my height. You can imagine I have eight year olds that are beating me and I'm 14. So it was, it was very humble beginnings. But you know, I, I that's all I needed it was a chance. Very good, Seth. And look, if we, if we move forward a couple of years, there's a, a famous New York Yankee, Yogi Berra, who to the Irish community mightn't have heard of him, but everyone in the States will have. And he once said that um, baseball is 90% mental and the other half is physical. And if we look up, Seth, you know, your background seems to be very much synonymous with building that mental capacity and working on mastery of the mind and the power of the mind. When did that become your calling? Well, I would say from the very first beginning, I started with this idea. So it was, it started with my mind first. So I would say that my entire life, especially from athletics on, was a mental experiment. And so at the same time, you know, my dad wasn't an athlete, but he was loving and supportive. So he took the curiosity to this as well. And he was always into self-development. And he was reading this book on memory. And it had a few pages in it. And he said, I think you should take a look at this, Seth. 
Um, and it was a description of this study that the East Germans were doing at the time. And it ha involved shooting free throws in basketball. And they had three groups. One group was physical training only. And then another group was both mental, which I had no idea what that meant, mental training. And then part of the time was physical training. And then there was this group that didn't even touch a basketball. And all they did was mental training. And when the results came back, the group that scored the lowest by far was the group that all they did was touch a basketball. And then the group in the middle that had mixed uh, regimen, they, were, they scored the highest. But really what intrigued me was this group that didn't even touch a basketball scored only slightly below the, the top group. And that's what I was looking for. I was, I was always, you know, out of my curiosity, was looking for something, anything, uh, you know, to, to give me an advantage. And I knew that I came from a family, a poor family. We didn't have a lot of money. So I knew that I had four years to get to, into position to be able to get a scholarship to the universities. And so I had this timeline built out in my head. Again, it's all in your, in your head first. And so from the very first day, I started just trusting and basing my entire career uh, on the power of the mind. I knew that was going to be my secret ingredient. And so the first step I had was there was a Sports Illustrated article on a famous swimmer at the time, Pablo Morales. And I took and cut his picture out. And then I took my picture and I put it up on the wall and I put it so that it looked like he was cheering for me and then he was excited, you know, and then I, it was just a reminder of trying to mentally go where he was at and connect his world to my world and, you know, use this power of, if you will, delusion where he cares about me. I care about him and creating this internal connectivity. And then at the same time, uh, there was a, uh, a swimming pool being built for the Goodwill Games. And it was a 12-hour drive, and my dad was you know, lovingly supportive and drove me 12 hours over the weekend to be able to go take pictures of a swimming pool that was just being built, so an empty swimming pool. So I took that roll of film, you know, I think it was 20 pictures, and I put those pictures up on my wall as well. So physically, you know, in the physical world, putting up reminders. And so the combination of those two really electrified my belief. And um, by the time I was a senior, so four years later, uh, you know, upon learning how to swim, I was a state champion. So I was the best in the state. So I knew also at that time that there was 50 states in the United States and there's 10 events. And so that's at least 500 swimmers. and or 500 state champions. So I got out there again and um, started contacting all the top universities, the top 20 universities, and told them my story and you know, put together a mission statement and a little press packet, you know, of all of my measurements and some of the highlights from my short career. I actually got a good response from the top coaches, and I chose University of Arizona, where, where I'm at now, um, because in the Pacific Conference, the majority, I would say 80% of the Olympians were coming out of this one particular conference. And so I wanted to be a small fish in a big pond. I wanted that. I wanted to always know what the best people in the world were doing. It's an incredible story, Seth. <laughs> yeah. So 
my freshman, my first year, I was in a dual meet, you know, so I was competing in this uh, dual meet. So it's just two schools, our school against the uh, University of Southern California, so USC. I went the same time that I went the previous year to be a state champion, and I got eight out of eight people. So I remember loving that. I was like, this is it. I'm, I'm here at the big time. So again, going back to the beginning of our conversation, embracing adversity. And adversity was what I needed to, to be challenged. And so by the time I was a sophomore, my second year at the university, I was racing and beating the Olympic gold medalists at the time, uh, Anthony Nesty, the entire race until the final stroke. And he outtouched me at the end. So within six years, I had gone from being this dreamer with this vision, this idea, and making this choice on a sport that I'd never tried you know, without any, any experience whatsoever, because that goes counter to most people's story in the sports world, at least, is that, you, you know, we always fixate on talent, you know, discovering talent at a young age. So it wasn't like someone spotted me in a swimming pool and said, no, you should go do that more. It was, no, it was a deliberate decision on my point. And here I was uh, six years later, you know, one of the best in the world. And um, eventually my senior year, so eight years from starting. So um, I became a two-time national champion and I went the fastest split ever recorded. And uh, a nice bookend closure to that experience was that when I won the national championship, uh, the person that handed me that trophy was Pablo Morales, the, the same person that was on my wall since the first oh. day that I started. So I had tears in my eyes and I gave him a big hug and told him, you know, Pablo, you have no idea what this means. <laughs> you really have no idea. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, a very uh, storybook journey. And, and what was interesting about it along the way was that I, my brother had taken an interest as well. And he's two and a half years younger. And so he started with this idea as well, with no experience, just seeing his brother, you know, going to the swimming pool and wanted to be a part of it. And so I have to leave to go to university. And he's still in, up in Oregon, you know, a thousand miles away, you know, long distance. So I started doing with him what I do with people now. And so from a distance, I started doing the mental coaching. And then when I would see him um, at the particular big meets, I would always, you know, sneak him onto the pool deck with my credentials. And then I, he was shy, just like myself. But I was, you know, taking it upon myself to gain, you know, mental access for him as well. And so I used to force him to go stand next to these famous Olympians. And then he'd get nervous and say, no, no. And I say, no, you have to do it because you have to go knock the pedestal out from underneath them in your mind if you ever want to beat them. So right from the very beginning of coaching someone else, I knew that they had to see what, what I call to this day normalizing your success. It has to be normal. It has to be something you step into rather than trying to step up to. And so fast forward to my brother's senior year at the university. He qualified for nationals. Nationals, uh, there was Olympians, nat past national champions. And it, with him, it was just simple. Your brother has done this. You can do this. And just, you know, gaining access again to your dreams and your vision. 
And he dove into the water and he took the race from start to finish. He dominated the race and we became the first brothers to ever win the same national championship title in the same event in the history of swimming. Uh, and, and the only real connection between us, because his personality type is the complete opposite to mine, the only connection, similar, uh, similarity is, uh, the, the, uh, the trust, the base in the power of the mind. Um, so yeah, yeah, big proponent personally and then also professionally. And then, um, yeah, I'm, now I work with others, you know, work with NBA, NFL, um, ATP, tennis players, PGA golfers, um, all different ages, coaches, top university coaches, professional coaches. I work with business people, whether it's C-suite, uh, or sales executives, um, actually work with directors as well. So creative type. So, um, and then actors and musicians. And it's basically the same across the board. It's, um, First of all, they all enjoy having, you know, the stories, whether it's my stories or other stories, they enjoy the cross-reference of athletes and, you know, performance as, you know, if they're not athletic themselves, they enjoy having the, the stories, the, the metaphors that, that connect and, you know, just make the lessons even more symbolic. Um, and so one story I have that was, you know, towards the beginning of, of doing what I do now, I had someone contact me on, um, what was it? was it Instagram. And so it was a username and it wasn't their real name. So I had no idea who this person was. They contacted me on a Monday and they said, um, you know, does this really work what you do? And of course I said, yes. And personal experience. Right. And, you say. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, um, I got on the phone, you know, like I'm talking with you, you folks, and and it turned out he was a basketball player, and and so I'm always listening for patterns, you know, access and patterns, and um, so I, I felt like after a, a short conversation, I had noticed a, a pattern, and so he had this practice that was coming up on Thursdays, just so just a few days later, and he he said it's very important practice, and so I gave him a tool, you know, a plenty, I have plenty, plenty of tools and just chose one that felt right. A mental, you know, my, if you will, my mental toolbox. And so I gave him something and he went to the practice on Thursday and then contacted me later and he was very excited and he said, I made it. I said, what do you, what do you mean you made it? I thought it was a workout. And he said, no, it was a tryout. I'm, I'm now in the NBA. And so he was trying out for a major, major championship team in the NBA. And he had been a minor league player. And, you know, the only difference was giving him that access past, um, you know, for him, it was a, a self-destructive pattern that I noticed. And, and so I just wanted to give him something to get past that. That was the door. <laughs> Brilliant. So we're looking forward to getting into that mental toolbox and also your work that you do at the moment. But just before we do that, I'm very interested in the six years of when you went from a novice to being almost beating Olympians, dedication and hard work, the work ethic that was needed there. Where do you think the appetite for that came from? That's a very good question. Um, you know, it's an internal calling. I, I think we, when I eventually made it to the university, 
I remember I was still a bit, a bit of a no name. And, you know, that, that was a fairy tale story as well, because my coach was a, a no name as well. And we were both kind of getting this opportunity of a lifetime and starting out with, you know, basically that power, powerful mindset, you know, the, the beginner's mindset where you don't know enough to, to know what you can't do. So, um, I remember talking to him after I accomplished a lot of this and said, you know, what was it? His, his name is Frank Bush. He went on to become the not only national champion coach and Hall of Fame coach, and he also became the Olymp head of the Olympic coaches, and then he also became the head of USA Swimming. He was in charge of Michael Phelps for all five of his Olympics. So we had very humble beginnings, like I said, and, and then ended up traveling to the top. And I remember asking him, what was it? You know, what did you see in me um, compared to anyone else that you could have been recruiting at the time? And he said it was passion. You know, he said, Seth, you just, I can coach all kinds of things, but I can't coach passion. You either have it or you don't. So I had this internal desire and it was just, I say a calling, but, you know, I, I like to reference Kobe Bryant a lot. Uh, I think he Thank goodness he, before he passed away, he shared a lot and, you know, that things that he kept close to him and guarded while he was competing. And then when he was retired, he started to share. And it's this form of mastery and striving for perfection, knowing that perfection does not exist, but that the process is the focus and the outcome is a byproduct. It's not the focus. And so for, for me, it was this love. I mean, first it starts with this visceral experience of loving what you're doing. So for me, I could go and sit by a swimming pool and I just felt like that. This is heaven. You know, it would be everything. It would be the sun on my face, the, the smell of, of the water and, you know, just everything about it. And, and then when I would hear Kobe talk about it, it was the same for him. He just loved the feel of the basketball. He loved to hear how the basketball sounded when it was bouncing on different surfaces and he loved to be a you know as he called it geek out or be a geek about you know the backboards and different backboards systems that they had you know going from the nba to a high school gymnasium just these little details about the experience and and it's a full experience and and it's in his his uh process he called it the mamba mentality and um you know, number one rule is that obsession is not an option. And so I've kind of adopted that to say obsession isn't an option. You, know, you must become obsessed. And you, you, in order to become obsessed, you, you have to have this internal passion. Um, and then, you know, from there, it just unfolds because from there, I just encourage people, um, you know, that the next step is curiosity, you know, and then to be curious, you have to be vulnerable. See how these are all linked together. Um, so you go out into the world and you take this, you know, kind of, uh, you know, student approach of what, what can I learn? You know, what have the people before me, what, what have they left? What, what, what experience and trail have they, have they forged? And then you go and you, you, you research and, you know, Kobe was no different. He went and sat. With all of the greats, when he made it to the NBA, he went and met with Magic and Larry Bird and on and on and on. He took a student's approach, and I was the same way. 
looking around, looking for, if you will, clues, you know, and, and they're there, you know, I mean, that's what I, I really get excited about working with people now is that it's not just taking someone from, you know, this, this dream, uh, it, and making it a reality. It's the process, you know, it's the love, you know, just kind of trying to, to help them to make that fire inside only grow. And then from there, the curiosity. And then from there, you start to notice these, what we start to call the blueprint. And there's a blueprint. It's laid out in front of us. And, you know, there's Kobe would talk about one of the inspiring movies that he loved was this classic American football movie called Rudy. Um, made by the same person that did Hoosiers. You know, these are two classic athletic films of, you know, at least my generation. And Rudy was about this dreamer. He wanted to play football for the, you know, the fighting Irish, the, the, the Notre Dame. Um, and they were the champions for, they had a, a dynasty culture and this kid couldn't even get into the university. And, you know, everybody around him thought he was this crazy dreamer. And he just kept pushing and pushing. And all his idea was to, I got to get to Notre Dame. I got to get on the football team. I got to take the field with everybody else, you know, and by the end, he, he does that. He makes it a reality. And that's a real story. There is a person out there whose name is Rudy and he, that's, that it's the, it's a movie about him, a real life story. And, and Kobe took inspiration from that movie, um, you know, in his own career to persevere, you know, to go against the odds, to be that student that never stops. And, you know, I'm, I'm built, I'm cut from the same cloth. And so it's, you know, I, I think that the blueprints, the way that it's hidden is that it's so obvious. You know, I always try to remind people that I think that uh, the most powerful things in the world are the most obvious. And, and they're, that, that's why they're so hidden, just right there in plain daylight right in front of you and a lot of times it's unattractive you know repetition of the tedious mundane little things you know and 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 just continuing with it and so yeah yeah it's been a very exciting uh you know journey to be able to not only do it myself but to turn around and you know I, i reach out to and i and i want to encourage people to, to go and, and pers- pursue their dreams and make them a reality. And so I'll reach out to the Yankees. I'll reach out to the Red Sox, the Dallas Mavericks, you know, all these big, huge franchises, and at least in the United States. And then also Formula One, you know, getting to know the Formula One drivers and the coaches behind them, um, you know, and, and just connect and share and, and, and be able to, see that there's a commonality between all of us, you know, focusing on the process over the outcome. And it's been really exciting to be able to be a part of what I believe is, is a movement, you know, and, and I think that there's a, a nexus as well, you know, where I think the interest of mental health is meeting up with mental uh, performance. So we've talked so far about mental performance I think mental health is an incredibly important issue that we're starting to see this bring being brought to the forefront. They're obviously connected. And so performance is probably getting out ahead of it, seeing your, your mind as a tool. Um, and then mental health is obviously dealing with issues that we need to deal with. And I went through my own mental health issues once I was done with my sport, 
you know, and who am I beyond this identity of this great athlete? So I had to deal with that. So in the United States, we've had Kevin Love, who came out. He's a champion, world champion on the Cavaliers you know, from the NBA team. And, you know, now we have Michael Phelps, 23 gold medals, and he he's speaking on mental health and saying that he was very unhappy even after winning 23 gold medals. So I think that there's a lot to be discussing and I think there's a lot to be putting together, you know, and I, I think the time is now and, and it's really exciting to be able to be connecting and, you know, with folks like yourself. And Seth, like you've touched on so much there. I mean, like for me, success leaves clues. You've talked about being the eternal student, that obsessive nature, persistence, the importance of hard work that, that gets you places. A question I'd have for you now is a lot of the time in professional football or soccer here in Europe and in professional basketball, baseball, double, triple A and so forth, there's, there's so much of an ethos and a development now on talent, athletic and player development in terms of grooming the next big thing. Who's the 18-year-old who's going to be an all-star, who's going to be a perennial pro bowler, who's going to be, you know, lighting it up in Fenway. I suppose I'd, I'd like your expertise on that, you know, on, on that space of the guys who are all about the player development, but where does your space come in to really help harness that potential so that those young players on the cusp are ready and are prepared for the performance they'll have to put in, the expectations and all that? Well, that's a, another good question. You know, it's interesting that my story contrasts the people and some of the people I work with. So I started when I was 14. I was self-motivated, very unique and with no experience of the sport. And I work with people as young as eight years old that are world champions in their specialized sport. So I try to bridge the two worlds. And what I, what I try to do is make sure that they know at a young age that the sport is what you do. It's not who you are, who you are as a human being. And so what I try to do is set the stage, you know, so that they can process things and they're not out there personally, you know, thinking that that, perf that performance stands for who they are as a person and their self-worth. Yeah, it's a very interesting subject to be able to kind of be the, the bridge between the two worlds and try to keep some mental health, some mental balance to the whole equation. And that's my hope is if I show them this tool and I show them the power of them being able to develop emotional intelligence where they're able to take an outcome that's, you know, extremely unattractive, let's say, um, you know, and to be able to process it and have a different reaction, you know, that like I tell them, there's a lot of adults that can't do these skills. So if you guys can learn this at a young age, then more power to you. And it's not just teaching them skills for the sport performance, but like I like to tell everyone, these are life skills. You know, these are things that you'll take beyond your sport and, you know, be able to adjust and be able to rise up through, you know, whatever ranks of whatever business or endeavor you do past your career as an athlete. So, but you do bring up a good point that our world has become more and more specialized. I think with the more communication that we have, you know, the technology, um, it gives us a sense, and I would say in some levels, a false sense of control 
And that can be really, you know, a dangerous mixture because people will say, oh, well, I know this story and I know this person and I know this coach and I know this and I've watched this. And, you know, it gives a sense of like knowing without experience. And also it takes away that curiosity, you know. So another part that's really, you know, important to the equation. And I talk to Formula One drivers and coaches about this just as much as I talk to, you know, um, NBA and uh, PGA and, you know, all of them is, is the need for vulnerability. You know, the subject of vulnerability is, is a huge one now. And I think that the technology has given us this false sense of control or this buffer from responsibility, this direct, you know, confrontation that humans need between us. And if we run into each other somewhere and we have a conversation, we need adversity. We need people that don't agree with us. You know, we need to be able to work through those issues. And when we have technology in between where we're only surrounded by, you know, confirming beliefs of our micro bubble, um, then yeah, things can get out of control. So I think that's the challenge that we have now, both as athlete, parent, coach, you know, as to be able to stay open-minded and stay flexible, stay vulnerable, you know, and, and curious. And we're always going to have these people that will come out of nowhere. You know, like my time, it was Mark Spitz, seven gold medals, seven world records. And I thought that was never going to be broken. I, I wanted to be the one that broke that actually. And then along comes Michael Phelps, you know. And so, you know, now he has 23 gold medals and, uh, you know, reset that, that, that record as well. So yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting time. It's a very interesting time. Definitely. On this podcast, we often talk to coaches and performance specialists about how the common teams or trends across elite athletes, elite business people, elite people in creative fields, they're always present. But I'm interested, have you worked with anyone where maybe as an outlier of a trend or an attribute that you've noticed and said, oh, that's changed the way I practice. That's something completely different I haven't encountered. And now that might actually make me look at my mental skills training or the way I use that mental toolbox a bit differently. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely, I use what worked for me, but I found things along the way that I wish I would have had. So it's a combination. And then I am constantly encouraging people to share the people that I work with. We create a bit of a tribe experience where, you know, I think there's an advantage that I coach different sports um, and then also different areas of life and coaches and athletes and even PGA caddies, you know, and, and then a cross reference the stories and, you know, it, because I feel like it goes through the filter if we, or let's say a golfer and I brought up another golfer said this, there's a high filter because there's a lot of familiarity. But if I say, well, there's a formula one driver and he says this and is doing this and having it, it will get through the filter of familiarity. And so I try to embrace, I mean, it's funny early in the process with people, I'll start with the man in the mirror or the woman in the mirror. And, and I'll say, if, if you're not interested in evolving as a human being, then I really can't get a toehold. I can't get a leverage into maximizing 
you know, helping you to maximize your potential. I need, um, you to be interested in evolving as a human being first. And so from there, um, then we, we all have to remain curious and vulnerable. And, and so they'll bring things to me at times that, you know, is, is really enlightening. And, and so what one of the areas that I like to, to go over is I call it celebration of, of my wrongness and kind of a silly way of describing it. But I've noticed that the ego, you know, our conscious mind throughout the day likes to take shortcuts because the conscious mind can only process one thought at a time, 40 bits per second, very slow and takes an incredible amount of energy. So, of course, our conscious mind is always trying to box things and, and take shortcuts. And so what I've noticed in my own, because I'm trying to be self-aware as well, you know, the man in the mirror with myself as well. So I'm looking for blind spots all the time, areas to work on. And, and so celebrating my wrongness is this tiny little trick that I've done for myself where throughout the day, I'll notice when I'm wrong about an assumption. So if in traffic, I think someone just cuts someone off and they're going to do the same thing to me. And then they let me in. It's the opposite. It's completely opposite of what my, you know, shortcut minds and my conscious mind was predicting would happen. But I don't just let that happen. I really celebrate it. I really take and laugh at myself and say, you're just so wrong. You are just so wrong. And look at that. And, and then when you are able to do that, first of all, it helps your sense of humor. It helps your flexibility. And then I find that this flow kind of develops throughout the day. By not needing to be right. And so the same, and it's powerful, you know, it's, it's a powerful experience. And so I try to do that with coaching that I go in when someone asks me, you know, we start a session together, all lessons. I, I do have, you know, material and, and processes and principles that I've developed over decades of life experience. Um, but also I remain open. So when someone asks that question, any question, I first go inward. And so I, I like to say that one of the advantages that I feel like with working with me is that I have battlefield experience. So it comes from real world, you know, in essence, the, the athletic battlefield. So I'm not coming from necessarily a, an academic. I mean, I do have my academic um, degree in psychology. Uh, but more times than not, it's, it's the real life experience. And so when someone asks me a question, I'll go inward first and then see what fits. Will this work? You know, it has to work. It has to have some sort of result. It has to resonate with me. And, and so you have to. To remain in that sort of beginner's mind to be able to, to say, you know, I, I thought it was going to be this, but it's this and you have to adjust. And I encourage that myself and I encourage it with the people I work with. And then when you can get out there on the playing field and you can be completely within the moment, you know, the flow state, uh, the zone, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, it, it exists in this sort of, sort of controlled chaos, you know, random, you know, it, 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 it you know, pressure filled situation of all these extreme elements pulling in opposite directions. So we need all of us 
you know, need to be able to be flexible and uh, possibly celebrate our wrongness more often than not. <laughs> Love that, Seth. So much to take in there now that, you know, can impact so many different people. I hope everyone listening really even rewinds that and listen back to those pearls from the set. Last question for me is for the younger generation, you said there earlier you have a couple of young kids. I, I have two children myself and just bearing in mind what's happened with the world over the last six to seven months with the pandemic and face masks and physical and social distancing and all these kind of challenges that will continue to impact us moving forward. Is there one life skill that you would like to be able to give to that younger generation, to all the four-year-olds, the five-year-olds, the eight-year-olds that are, you know, going through all this? What's the big kind of life skill that you'd like to be able to help and impact them with? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So when we started the isolation, I internally felt that, again, adversity is opportunity. Uh, but I wanted to find a, a real life example. Um, and so a friend of mine is, uh, he, he fits bicycles for Olympians and professional cyclists. And so I went to him with this idea. I said, you know, the, the Tour de France looks like it's won by people that attack the mountain stages. Is that, is that correct? And so he actually trains with someone that has won one of the stages of the Tour de France. So he, he went to him and, and asked him the same question and came back and said, yes, confirmation, definitely. Because when adversity is at its greatest, so is opportunity. And so when you attack in the mountain stages, that's when you can get separation from your competition. And so. Um, when you're going on the descents, the downhills or the flats, you know, that's when it's more technology, aerodynamics and groups are, you know, packed together. And so you really have to attack the mountain if you want to have any shot at winning. So that's what I started to do is to frame with myself and everybody around me that, that right now adversity is its greatest. But then I started to call it, you know, this is the mountain stage of Tour de COVID. And so that, you know, just being playful, but also at the time, you know, still being practical, trying to teach them that adversity is something to be welcomed and something that you work with. And so whether it's my own children or it's the people that I work with, I try to create, um, you know, good metaphors and references. And so I, I always like to keep it in perspective by saying, we're all writing our book. We're the author of our biography or our autobiography. And, and, you know, that's our life. And each of the chapters is a season, you know, if you will. And um, every day that we live, the actions, you know, it's, it's ironic, even though I, I teach and work and coach in the power of the mind, it's all action-based in the end. Because if we don't get out there and do something, you know, then it's just, you know, playing around in our minds. So we have to have action every every day. So I said we write the pages by the actions of the day. And so that's my challenge to everyone is that even though COVID has put us in a position of extreme adversity, if you look at this as a chapter in your book, how are you writing it with your actions? Are you you know, is this a is this a captivating chapter? I mean, for some of them, you know, I would say all of my clients, 
this is this is the chapter that is really the, the the clincher. This is the one that I think will have everyone on the edge because they'll be saying, "Wow, you know, you had no competitions, and you you had to you're in isolation." You know, I, I work with a hockey player that is in Phoenix, Arizona, one of the best in the nation, and he he didn't have ice to skate on. And he's in his backyard in the desert on rollerblades, shooting a hockey puck into an empty net, you know, mm. embracing adversity. And then when he got a chance to come back and try out for the top team, he got three hat tricks in nine games. I mean, that just doesn't happen. You know, this is a person that embraced the adversity. And so his book is just that chapter, this chapter, this COVID chapter is going to be just a blockbuster for him. It changed everything. So I really encourage people to to look at this. I mean, for me in the swimming reference, I still remember one of the my great moments in my career. We went to this meet. It was happened to be at Stanford. It was outdoors. It was cold. It was miserable. Everybody was complaining. And I remember saying to myself, Everybody has to compete in the same pool. Okay. And when I had that simple realization, I had the best meet of my entire life. So that's why I like to circle back with now and say, we're all competing in the same pool. You know, it's what you make of this chapter. How are you going to write your book in this chapter, especially? It's a really good way to frame it. And thanks for that insight and all the ones you've given so far. I have one more question to end the show and it's one we ask everybody that comes on what does high performance mean to you Seth? high performance is to me how you respond to adversity you know not not to repeat i'm not going to repeat the the last answer but you know uh when when i'm talking to someone um and it doesn't matter what um sport or what profession I want to know what the response was because I feel like if their response is something where they were in control of the response, then they have the opportunity to change. They realize that they have that, that opportunity to change. So that to me is, is the, uh, that's what I would sum up, you know, in, in my role. And, you know, people will ask me that in, in interviews. you know, a simple answer. What, what's your role? And I would say, more times than not, it's it's helping people to help themselves get out of their own way. So, you know, that's a that's kind of a simple way of saying how did you respond to the adversity? Seth Pepper, the two of us would like to say thank you very much for giving us your time, sharing some quite remarkable, amazing stories about your your start on the swimming journey adventure that became really special and then about so much of the wisdom that you've managed to distill from from the mental space and what we can all learn for mental performance but also mental health and that's so important for people's well-being now more than ever so thanks very much again and um, let's please stay in touch thank you both for having me i've I've really enjoyed this conversation thanks cheers thank you for listening to today's episode of sleep eat perform repeat a story of high performance this was brought to you by Howora, a whole person wellbeing company founded and run from Dublin, Ireland. Find out more at howoralife.com, spelt H-A-U-O-R-A life.com. Please rate, review and share the podcast. Some people want it to happen. Some wish it would happen. Others make it happen. 
the GOAT, Michael Jordan. 